Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy. And I'm Jablaine Chakraborty. And today we're going to start our podcast off with one of the most famous lines in history. You've probably heard it in movies, TV shows, probably said it yourself. Here it goes. Dr. Livingston, I presume? Yes, that's the line. Maybe you've even played like Stanley and Livingston. I think I think I might have done that when I was a kid. That was just my first time doing yep. it right there. Really? My well, debut. How about that? We've, <laughs> we've got it on uh, on tape. So that line originally, before it was spoken by Dublina, was spoken by Henry Morton Stanley to Dr. David Livingston in 1871. And that's when this Welsh-turned-American newspaperman, we'll explain that transformation a little later, found the famous Scottish explorer in Africa. They were in this tiny town called Ujiji, which is now in Tanzania. And um, it's actually just for a little reference. It might actually help to pull up a map or something for this podcast. But just to give you a little bit of a reference, that's really near the National Park where Jane Goodall worked. But the really interesting thing about this quote that we opened up with is that Stanley may have never really said it in the first place. Livingston doesn't mention it. And the page where it would have been in Stanley's journal was actually ripped out. But the two men are still forever linked by this, by what he said. Yeah, well, and that's because finding Livingston alive after six years without contact with the outside world made Stanley into a huge journalist star, so famous that he was ultimately knighted. And being found by Stanley in turn made Livingston even more of a star than he already was. It kind of created this myth of Livingston as the the saintly missionary, too, especially when he refuses to leave Africa with Stanley and go back home to England. Yeah, you really can't talk about one of them without the other. No, so y'all are in luck, because this is going to be a dual biography podcast, which happens once in a blue moon. So we'll go ahead and get started with a question. How did Dr. David Livingston find himself in Ujiji in the first place? Well, it was largely because of his difficult Scottish upbringing and strict faith. He was born in 1813, and he lived with six siblings in a single-room tenement. So really cramped space, meager beginnings, and he worked in a cotton mill at the age of 10. So so a hard early life, but he's really interested in bettering himself and pursuing an education. And in his early 20s, he became determined to become a missionary. And so he started studying away. He worked on Greek and medicine and theology while he was still working at the mill part-time, which I find pretty impressive. And by 1838, it really paid off, and he was accepted into the London Missionary Society. And his original intention was to go be a missionary in China, but the Opium Wars, or the first Opium War, was going on at this time, and it wasn't safe for him to go to China. So instead, he wound up in South Africa. And he had a pretty adventurous life, to say the least, in South Africa. Yes, he did. He explored and traveled further north from South Africa than any other European had before him. He was also mauled by a lion. Something that stuck with him for the rest of his life. He had a crooked elbow and had to sight a gun from the left. Yeah, well, I would think even if you didn't have a crooked elbow, that would still stick with you for a while. (laughs) Pretty traumatic. He also won a gold medal from the British Royal Geographic Society after leading an expedition that located Lake Ungami. 
But his real hopes for his time in Africa were Christianity, commerce, and civilization. At least that's what he said. Yeah, that was kind of his his line about what he wanted to do while he was in Africa. And of course, now it seems pretty Victorian, narrow-minded, and kind of silly to think that you, this one man from um, Scotland, can bring Christianity, commerce, and civilization to an entire continent. But what Livingston was really hoping to do was to open up the continent's interior. And his his motive for that was um, was admirable. It was to try to create a trade route to the Atlantic that would undercut the slave trade that was still going on. And it was it was pretty bad. And he was very disturbed by it and wanted to figure out some way to uh, to combat it. Yeah, and if he converted some folks along the way, more the better. He that was something else that he wanted to do. But it was Yeah, I know. <laughs> Go not ahead. Not very good at that. Not very good at it at all. And according to Stanley and Livingston biographer Tim Geel, Livingston really only made one convert. This is truly amazing. And the convert lapsed later. Yeah, so eventually. very unsuccessful and it, in that respect. It's kind of amazing, too, when you hear that figure, which I think just emerged in the 1970s, um, because Livingston does have such a reputation as this amazingly successful missionary and explorer. But anyways, even if his missionary work didn't prove to be that successful, his explorations definitely made him famous. And he was especially famous in the 1850s, which is after he explored the Zambezi region and named Victoria Falls. Um, there's Queen Victoria again, like popping up in so many episodes. And after he got back to London from that exploration, he published missionary travels and researches in South Africa and sold 70,000 copies. And I mean, this is he, he was a little bit famous before this, but this made him into a superstar explorer, somebody who would be mobbed on the streets of London. Yeah, but his next expedition was much less successful, right? Yeah. Yeah, his wife actually died, his crew quarreled, and he was recalled in 1863 because not much came out of it. I mean, I think some scientific efforts came out of it, but not much besides that. Yeah, I mean, folks were afraid that He'd die if he stayed out there any longer. Yeah, so it left him in a really bad spot. He was getting older, and he was pretty weathered from his earlier travels, as you mentioned, the lion lion mauling. The lion mauling injuries um, were still hanging around and causing him problems, and he needed money. And sickness, too. Yeah, and illness, you're right. But he also needed cash. Mm Mm-hmm. One last great adventure. Yeah, so maybe one last great adventure would do it. And a bestseller maybe out a of it. A bestseller. So that's what he's hoping to do. And so in 1864, Sir Roderick Murchison, who was the head of the Royal Geographic Society at the time, asked Livingston, who was his old buddy, to uh, to go out on that one last one last trek and try to find the source of the Nile. So trying to find the Nile was apparently an old explorer's game, one that had been going on for a very long time, perhaps starting with Herodotus in 460 BC. But it had been in the news a lot at this time, you know, in the past few years, because as recently as 1858, the explorer Richard Burton, another strange name that doesn't quite fit in that time, had challenged his old buddy John Speak, um, who had claimed that he had found the river's head at a lake that he named Victoria. So these two old friends were going to have basically a an explorer 
talk off or something, you know, like some sort of match. I think it was billed as a gladiatorial match, actually. Um, and they were going to debate the claims of the Royal Geographic Society. But unfortunately, Speak turned up dead the day before from a self-inflicted gunshot wound, um, perhaps just overcome by the stress of this debate. So this was something that was on people's minds, clearly, trying to find the source of the Nile. It sounds a little old-fashioned now, but it was a big deal. Yeah, and Livingston wasn't one to back down from a challenge. He accepted, and he left August 1865, and fully expected to come back in two years' time. But his expedition got off to a bad start right from the beginning. As we mentioned, his health was not good. He had to take these roundabout ways to get where he was trying to go, and he ended up getting deserted by some of his followers who after they deserted him, they cooked up the story that he was, in fact, dead. Yeah, so, they were afraid they'd get in trouble. So they just said, oh, Livingston died back on the on the trail. So there's this rumor now that he is dead. And even though word gets out within a year that he actually is still alive, he's really lucky to be so because another deserter stole his medical chest. He decided to keep going. And I mean, meanwhile, he was pressing further and further into the interior of the continent and really didn't have any safety nets in place at all. So by July 1868, he was really just too weak to go on by himself So he joins up with some Arab traders, which is a moral dilemma for him because, as we mentioned before, he so opposed the slave trade. But they helped keep him alive, and they helped him get to Lake Tanganyika in February 1869. Yeah, and from there, he finally makes it to Nyangwe, which is located on the Lualaba River, which is today in Western Democratic Republic of Congo. And at this point, it was further west than any European had traveled. And just to give you a little idea of how isolated it is, it's about 1,000 miles from the Atlantic Ocean and about 1,000 miles from the Indian Ocean. So way, way out there. Okay, but there's one little catch about hanging out with these slave traders from Persia and Arabia and Oman. They know that Livingston is anti-slavery and that... Their current work isn't very popular around the world, so they are willing to take care of him, to give him food and shelter, and to essentially save his life. I mean, he would have been out of luck out here on his own. But they won't let him send any letters home, because then everybody will know from famous Livingston exactly where they are, exactly how far in they've gotten to the interior. So that's why Livingston, even though he is alive and semi-well, is lost to the world. Yeah. So in 1869, the young journalist, Henry Stanley, now we're on his story a little bit, he pitches an idea to his editor, James Gordon Bennett Jr. of the New York Herald, and he proposes that he go to Africa, find Livingston, dead or alive, and write about it. Yeah, and it'll be the biggest story of the year. So Bennett agrees to this, seeing its merits, and Stanley is off on his most famous adventure. But he had a pretty wild life up to that point. He was well prepared for future wild times. Yeah, in fact, his name isn't even really Henry Stanley. Yeah, he was born John Rollins in 1841 in Wales to Elizabeth Perry, who I saw described in different sources as a housemaid or 
in one case, a prostitute, and John Rollins, who was likely the town drunk. So he was raised by unwilling relatives, you know, this illegitimate child, and spent some time in the workhouse. And it must have been a difficult childhood for him, and um, it must have been pretty tumultuous moving around, but it might not be quite as Dickensian as he made it out to be. We're going to learn over the course of Stanley's life that he is prone to exaggerating things or just outright telling lies. Um, the workhouse was, was probably not quite as brutal. But at age 15, he decided to leave it nevertheless. And he hops on board a ship bound for New Orleans and ends up taking the name of this cotton merchant named Henry Hope Stanley. And this is one of the weirdest parts of the story, in my opinion. Again, because of later sketchiness from Stanley, from the the new Stanley. <laughs> um, we're not quite sure what their relationship was because he makes it out to be like the elder Stanley, Henry Hope Stanley, was a father figure, you know, somebody who pretty much adopted him and helped him get on his feet. And um, he took his name sort of as um, an homage to him. But he might have not even known him or not known him well, at least. Yeah, he could have been a total stranger, right? Yeah. So this newly made Stanley sets out, however, to Americanize himself from this point. He picks up an accent. He joins a Confederate regiment from Arkansas called the Dixie Grays, and he fights at Shiloh. He is then captured, imprisoned at Fort Douglas, and he switches sides. So he switches to the Union Army. He's given the option to either stay in prison or switch to the Union. (laughs) And, you know, what the heck, right? He goes for it. Yeah, he's a Welshman anyways. So then he deserts, however, and he heads back to Wales for a little while. Yeah, and it's interesting because he doesn't just stay in Wales. I think he's rebuffed by his mother again. Uh, He comes back to the United States, and he spends some time gold prospecting out west, and then he becomes a journalist, and he reports from places like Turkey, Iowa and Ethiopia. I know Iowa doesn't sound quite as exotic in that (laughs) list, but at the time, definitely so. Yeah, there were good stories to be told out there. Yeah, so just this kind of wild roving life. It reminded me a little bit of um, an earlier podcast we did on the stars of the Wild West. They all have these lives where they're just all over the world, crazy things happening. He certainly seems to attract adventure. Yeah, and at this point, He's ready for a new one and for fame as well. So that's why he approaches Bennett with this story to find Livingston. So he gets his assignment, but after just three months in the African interior, Stanley is down 40 pounds and he's sick with malaria and dysentery. And he's having trouble with his travel companions. His thoroughbred stallion dies almost immediately. One human travel companion dies of encephalitis. Another tries to shoot Stanley and then dies a little bit later. And on his way to Tabora, uh, which was this big Arab trading town in the interior, so imagine a place with mansions and um, very built up, Stanley writes his first dispatch to the newspaper. He hadn't really written much along the way, and he explains himself in this 5,000-word letter saying, essentially, I've been using all of my strength to stay alive on the trail. I haven't really had time to write. I hope I'll be able to write more later if you gentle readers will be willing to to hear it. But he does give um, kind of an ultimatum about finding Livingston. 
He does. He says, until I hear more of Livingston or see the absent old man face to face, I bid you farewell. But wherever he is, be sure I shall not give up the chase. If alive, you shall hear what he has to say. If dead, I will find him and bring his bones to you. I thought that was pretty dramatic to not just say bring back his bones, bring his bones to you, the <laughs> reader, desk. the subscriber of this <laughs> New York uh, newspaper. Pretty wild. So he is hanging out in Tabora, not hanging out, you know, recovering, getting his supplies together. But he's gotten word that a white man has been spotted in Ujiji, which is only 250 miles away or so. So that's where he's going to head. There are a few roadblocks, like tribal wars actually blocking the charted route. So he's got to beat this new path through the north. And the other issue is that he's suffering from cerebral malaria and having visions and delusions. And once he recovers from that, miraculously does not die from it, he catches smallpox. So pretty sickly himself, Um, certainly surprisingly sickly to go out looking for this other man. Yeah, so Stanley's not doing so hot. Meanwhile, in Nyangwe, Livingston's little rest break thing comes to an end after some of the traders massacre villagers. So he's out of paper. All this craziness is going on. He's out of ink. He's writing on scraps with root dye. But he basically has no help. So he flees the situation. But he gets sick again as he does that. He has dysentery and swollen feet. He heads to Ujiji about 400 to 500 miles away. So quite the hike for someone who's very ill. Definitely. But he's hoping that when he gets to the consulate, they'll have sent supplies. But when he gets there, there's not anything. Yeah, so he is out of luck. He's in Ujiji, which is pretty isolated again. And his options are essentially to die of starvation and sickness or to become a beggar on the streets. So he is mulling over this this terrible fall in fortunes. And meanwhile, Stanley is pushing through his cerebral malaria and his smallpox. And he gets about halfway to Ujiji through the uncharted territory. And by November 1st, 1871, he finally gets to the Malagarasi River, where, this is so sad, a crocodile eats his donkey. So, I mean, his stallion's already died. He's had a guy shoot at him. And now a crocodile eats his donkey. Yeah, I feel like you could almost write a country song about this adventure. It might have to be an alligator. Right. (laughs) But by November 10th, he enters Ujiji with American flags waving. According to Livingston, however, it was actually sometime between October 24th or 28th, but somewhere in that month time frame. I think we can forgive them for getting a little off on their count. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, Livingston sees this American caravan entering the city and thinks that this must be some really rich traveler. And I wonder what they're doing here. And when he sees Stanley all clad in white flannel with a hat, you know, I mean, he looks exactly how you'd picture a cartoon explorer or something. He thinks that Stanley is so proper looking that he must be French, despite the American flags. And he actually writes something later that's that's kind of funny. Essentially, he he thinks, I can't speak French. And how ridiculous is it going to be if we run into each other and we can't communicate? Fortunately, though, Stanley is this nouveau American and speaks English and they have their famous conversation. Dr. Livingston, I presume? Yes. I thank God, doctor. I have been permitted to see you. 
I feel thankful I'm here to welcome you. So bubbling with emotion. <laughs> yeah, quite a solemn conversation. Actually, I I looked up a YouTube video of the the old movie and that's exactly how it goes down except I guess they have different inflections on their words. Still pretty pretty low key though. You'd think they'd be maybe really excited to see each other at last. Yeah, especially after everything they'd gone through to find each other. But regardless, even though their first meeting may have been underwhelming, they do become very good friends. Stanley delivers supplies to Livingston, and Livingston takes Stanley on some exploring trips around the area. Yeah, they go tour the lake, and they actually go out exploring together for about a month with Stanley sort of picking up tricks from the the old explorer. And by the time that they're back to Ujiji again, Stanley still can't persuade Livingston to come back to England. And it's, it's kind of interesting. Stanley's original plan was to go confirm Livingston's status, alive or dead, and then immediately head back to somewhere where he could send off his newspaper report. It's interesting that he took the time to stall and to try to persuade Livingston to come back with him. But Livingston wants to keep searching for the Nile source. I mean, he is obsessed with that goal. And so they part ways. Uh, Livingston is helped out by Stanley. You know, Stanley gets him some supplies and men to go along with him. And when they part, Livingston tells them, you have done what few men could do, and I am grateful. And so that's the end of Livingston, essentially. Yeah, he dies May 1st, 1873, and his heart is buried in Africa, and his body is mummified and returned to England, where it's buried in Westminster Abbey. Yeah, and Stanley heads out. He gets his scoop on May 2nd, 1872. The headline reads, Livingston Safe. And like we said earlier, I think they run this story for about a year. They really milk everything they can out of it. But that famous quote, we've got to address that because it's pretty unclear if Stanley ever even said it. Yeah, he swore that he said it. He mentioned it in two dispatches, but it's not in his journal. Those pages are torn out. So Yeah, so it's possible that by the time he got back from Africa, the quote which had gone ahead of him was way too big of a deal for him to back out of in any way. We don't know if he said it or not. It's a pretty well thought out thing to to say. It is, and even if it remains a mystery, I don't think it takes away from the adventure that... Yeah, you know, just makes a good podcast title. Definitely. <laughs> um, so Stanley, regardless of whether he said the quote, became incredibly famous. And after Livingston died, he himself decided to search for the Nile source, sort of picking up this this old friend's quest. And his accounts um, really entranced the public, his, his accounts of his later explorations. But they scandalized the Royal Geographic Society because he resorts to violence and brutality with nature. Native people. He um, has he shoots people. He hangs several of his porters. I think three of them throughout his career for deserting. And um, that's not something that an explorer was supposed to do. <laughs> I mean, clearly, but the Royal Geographic Society doesn't think so either. It, it's it's a different kind of man. It's not the explorer who comes and observes and um, takes something home. However, a lot of people think that Stanley may have actually exaggerated this, right? I mean, 
a lot of the violence and the casualties of his expositions, he might have just been sort of inflating them to impress his Victorian readers because he wanted to put a good story out there. Which is also disturbing, too, that Victorian readers wanted as many murders as possible. But he was a boaster, and it is really hard to tell with his life what was fact and what was fiction. But his reputation definitely got worse when he assisted King Leopold II of Belgium in establishing trading posts up the Congo River, so essentially opening up Congo all the way up to Stanley Falls. And um, Stanley Falls, of course, is a spot that was later called the Interstation by Joseph Conrad. If any of you have read Heart of Darkness, you know what kind of atrocities occurred in the Belgian Congo. It's possibly a subject for a very sad podcast. A very deeply disturbing podcast of the future. Been requested before, but just this association with King Leopold II and the Belgian Congo really has forever tainted Stanley's name. I mean, he's probably best associated with Livingston, but this comes in next. He was also damaged by his third and last African expedition in the late 1880s, and this was due mainly to the behavior of his rear column. The man who was left in charge was killed, and most famously, whiskey heir James Jameson bought an 11-year-old girl, sold her to cannibals, and watched as she was killed and eaten. And he drew it. That was the point of it. Yeah. So he could document the whole thing. Very disturbing, and obviously that's even a little too much for these Victorian readers who like as much blood and violence as possible. And um, when he comes back to England, he goes through a career change, essentially. He gets married, he adopted a son, and he was renaturalized as a British citizen and goes on to become an MP, of all things. Um, he has a country estate. I mean, it's just this, such a strange life, you know, going from a workhouse to Africa to a country estate. But I don't know. I guess that's Henry Stanley for you. Yeah, very strange ending to kind of a bizarre, adventurous life. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, that's our dual biography. One guy ends up in a country estate. One guy ends up with his heart buried in Africa and his mummified body in Westminster Abbey. I'd say that's a pretty... (laughs) Pretty exciting end for for both of them. So I guess that about wraps up our dual biography of Stanley and Livingston, and it brings us to listener mail. So this email is from Emmy in Kentucky, and she wrote, Dear Sarah and Dublina, I just finished listening to your podcast on the life of the bad boy Caravaggio. My brother and I went to Italy last summer, and we caught the Caravaggio exhibit while it was at the Uffizi. You're right, the lighting is very dramatic. The rooms are quite dark, and when you combine that with the content of his work, it was an eerie experience. I actually had to drag my brother, kicking and screaming to the museum, as he is not the art history enthusiast that I am. But once he was there and saw the exhibit, he was hooked and bought a few books on Caravaggio at the gift shop. While his enthusiasm for history and art was high from the Uffizi, I made him walk around Florence so we could see the baptistry doors and explained about the contest between, among others, Giberti and Brunelleschi. So, I thought that was an interesting story. It's always great to hear, you know, somebody becomes an art history fan. Just a little mood lighting might be all it takes. Yeah, and getting to see it in person, you know, hearing the stories is one thing, but 
getting to actually go out there and see where the history happened or see the works that we talk about is really cool. Definitely. Um, and I, I thought this was uh, of note, too, that I included this in a special blog edition of Listener Mail as well, which is something to start looking out for. It's on the blogs at our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. Dublina and I have both been updating them pretty regularly, news stories and um, recaps of episodes. So maybe you will see your own comments on the blogs. Yeah. So if you would like to show up in a blog or just let us know what you think of one of our episodes, you can email us at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com or you can visit us on Facebook or on Twitter at Missed in History. And if you would like to see if your comment ended up in a blog, you can find out by visiting the blogs module on our homepage, and that's at www.howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes.